Amen. Please have a seat. And um, so good to see all of you and worship together. And I know some of you are visiting, and we're so happy that you're here and want to make, um, make it a, a good as possible um, worship time for you. And um, I just came back from Irvine, and we had a Love Our Neighbor Day down there. And so last week, a bunch of people at church there passed out flyers and met the neighbors, and a bunch of neighbors came today, which is, um, which is really neat. So um, got to share there and come back, and just I'm excited and excited to see all of you today. Um, you know, uh, today we're in the heart of this letter. Really, I, I, if I could say this is the, the best part of it. You know, I was looking forward to this text, and uh, it's such a wonderful passage that many of us have read already um, and uh, know about. But it, it really highlights um, the three, and I made a little triangle here, and we can shoot that up, you know, and this is really fancy, right? I, I made it all by myself, um, Actually, I actually had to get help actually to get this done. But anyways, um, but the idea was mine. But, you know, it's this idea of the three most important people in our lives, God, others, and me. And how we understand and how we relate to God affects my relationship with others, and it also affects me. My joy, my happiness, my weaknesses, all of these things get redefined because of God. And so when I am in God, and man, I understand that he loves me and all these things, it changes me, and then it changes how I treat others. It's a, uh, uh, just a, and what we're going to do today is look at all three, um, what John here says about it and talk about it and how we ought to um, understand that. You know, there's a story uh, by a third century Christian historian, Eusebius. Eusebius talks, tells a story about John, the author of this letter. Um, and so John didn't just write these words, but he actually lived it. And the story goes like this, that John in his later years, as an old man, disciples a young man. A young man becomes Christian. The young man had a, a checkered past. He was part of kind of like a, a gang, a group of guys that would steal from people, mug people. And they would live in these mountains, and they would steal like uh, travelers and, and steal things from them. And so it was kind of a region. You didn't want to go by them because they were there. It was their territory. But one of them comes to faith. And this old man, John, now is discipling him. And there comes a time when John has to now travel. And when he goes and he travels, he asks the local bishop to watch, out, watch over this young man, to take care of him while he's gone. And as you imagine, traveling back in those days um, would take a quite a, a long time. And so he goes, and he comes back and he sees the bishop, and he finally asks, he said, well, how is the young man doing? And the bishop of that city tells John the apostle, that this young man has left and he is, quote-unquote, dead to God. That he had went back to his old life. He went back to those guys and the stuff that they were doing. And the story goes, Eusebius records that John ripped his clothes and he was crying. He was weeping because this young man had gone back. And what is it, uh, further, it, more intri intriguing is that he get, this old man gets on a horse and he goes straight to where those group of guys are, where nobody in the local area would ever go, because that was dangerous. Those guys were bad, bad news. And he goes straight up the mountain to go retrieve him, to go see him. When he gets up there, um, those guys are there. They take him, and as they're taking him, they're wondering, what is this old man doing up here? And he asks them, I need to talk to your leaders. And so they take them to their leaders up in the mountains, and the leaders are there. And one of the leaders was the young man he was discipling. And at the sight of John, the young man runs. 
And the story goes, Eusebius records that John, this old man, runs after him, yelling at him. Why are you running? I'm an old man. I don't have a weapon. Why are you running away from me? And he was so scared, he was running away. And finally, he catches up to him. And he says these words to him. Uh, Eusebius records, why, my son, do you flee from me? Your own father, unarmed, aged. He says, there's still hope for life. For you, I will give up my life. Stand, believe, Christ has sent me. And the man, the young man drops his weapons and he is trembling and he is crying. And it is at that point that he, Eusebius records that he baptized himself again in his own tears. He wept so much. And you read that story, you say, how can someone love someone like that? Why would John, it's such an important figure, the one who walked with Jesus, why would he chase after a kid like this? Because all of us, if we were in John's shoes, I'm not going to waste my time with him. Oh, well, you know, maybe I'll pray for him, but that's too bad. But he goes in after him, and we have to ask, you know, we have all encountered a few people in our lives, if we are lucky, that have chased us down when we're astray that haven't, they, they haven't given up on us. And they chase us down, and some of us, is when we're little, it was a coach, it was a parent, it was someone at church. Some of us, it's now, and someone is chasing us down. And we say, well, why, why would they do that? What possesses a man to love in this way? And we see here that it was all about John's relationship with God and that triangle that changed him and changed the way he treated others. Now, let's look at me first. We look at ourselves, right? What does the Bible say about me? As a follower of Jesus. In verse 7 in the text that we read, it says, Beloved. This is not just a simple title. He uses this word six times in the letter to, to address us. And if he would call you by name, he wouldn't just call you by name, but he'd say, You're beloved. Understand that you are loved. You have received love. Someone loves you, someone cares for you. We have to define ourselves in this. You know, Brennan Manning writes in his book, Abba's Child, he says, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is an illusion. Define yourself radically as one beloved by God. As a follower of God, my main identity, my only identity is that I am loved by God. Everything else, he says, is an illusion. It's, it's not worthwhile. It's not real. Think about this. When someone asks you, oh, who are you? Right? What is your identity? We often want to go to the things that we do. Well, I'm a pastor. You know, I'm a banker. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a doctor. I'm a nurse. Um, whatever you say that you might do. And that often defines us. Or often we define it by our relationship. Well, I'm a, I'm a dad. You know, no, I'm a mom. I'm a, I'm a child. I'm, I'm a, you know, we define it by the people around us. But ultimately, our ultimate identity is not just the things that we do or the people that are around us, but it is that we are loved. This is supreme. This is number one. Everything else is somewhat temporary. And if we define ourselves by those things, it'll never last. It'll let us down. Here, he says, you're beloved. Don't, don't skim over that truth that you are loved in this way. Um, verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is loved. Now, he's saying, this is your identity. Um, if you say you know God, if you say you love God and you, you know God, you have to love. This is who you are. This is, um, uh, you know, who you are as a person. Um, it's interesting because as we further look into our identity, uh, it tells us in verse 10, right, that the son, what, he, he was sent 
to be the propitiation for our sins. So what are we? We're loved, but we were also sinners. We're also guilty. We were the ones that Christ died for. Our sins, your sins. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, it was, we often say, boy, he, he died for the bad guys. He died for those living in that part of the world. Or he, it was my sins. And the picture that we get here is, man, that we were just, we were sinners. We were helpless. And in the midst of that, he loves us and I am beloved. And so, uh, this is always true, isn't it? I mean, the, the, the more worthless a person was, and how, if a person loves that person, I mean, that love is, more, is greater, is defined by that. And the picture we get here is, man, I was so worthless and he loved me. And so now I am beloved. Now I am no longer just guilty or condemned, but I am loved. Even bigger than just being saved, I am loved. More than being blessed, it's I am loved. That's who we are. Now, what do we know about others? It tells us in verse 7, you look at this. To let us love one another. Let's repeat that out loud uh, together, the underlined part. One, two, three. Let us love one another. This is like kindergarten, right? ABC. We've all been there, heard that. Let us all love one another. We know, we know this. How are we to deal with others? I have to love them. Now, love is a, love is a big word, isn't it? Those of you who are dating or married people, Remember the first time you said I love you to your significant other? I remember saying I love you to my wife for the first time, and it was like really awkward because I said it first, and I'm like, I hope she says it back. I know she likes me, um, but I, I remember saying it, and it was really awkward. I, I, I'm not an affectionate guy, and you know, my home wasn't too affectionate. Uh, you know, by the way, uh, all right, I'll see you tomorrow. I'll, I'll call you. I, I love you. Bye. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> Oh, you know, what, what? You know, and I remember, what, what did you say? You know, you know. Um, and it's a strong word. And now we're called to go love other people? We're called to love them? That means to give my all to them? All of who I am? It's a big thought. Here, let us love one another. Matthew 25, 40, here is the reason behind it, right? Because we do to others uh, what we now are thinking we're doing to God. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And so the picture is, is you're doing these things to others, but you're doing it to God. Now, moms and dads, we know someone cannot go to you and say, boy, I really like you, but I don't like your kid. It doesn't work that way, right? Someone can't come up and say, Steve, I really like you, but I, I really dislike your kid. It doesn't work. So can we be friends? We can't be friends. Like, if you not dislike my kid. Now, if you say, I really love your kids, we could be friends. Now, my youngest is, she plays basketball. And for some of the youth group people, parents, we know what that was like when, you know, your 10-year-old, there's 10, 10-year-olds running and playing basketball, and sometimes the score is like a soccer score game, you know, four to two at half, you know, and, um, but, and the only people there are the parents that are watching the games usually, and, um, you know, so you cheer. You're cheering for your child to do well. On our team, we have a mom, and she cheers for my daughter. It's pretty funny because she cheers out loud. Oh, my gosh, and so she'll come to me, um, and, you know, she'll grab, I want, this is last time, literally, she grabbed my shoulder and goes, did you see what Ashley just did? Oh, my gosh. It was so good. And I was like, 
uh, really? And I was like, no, I missed it because you were in my face talking to me. But um, I, I will. I, I want to watch. You know, but she, she cheers for her. Um, and so literally, uh, me and my wife were like, you know, I really like her, you know. <laughs> She's a good woman. She's a good human being. I like her, you know. I say hi to her now. You know, I know her name, know her kid's name. Oh, hey, how's it going, you know. And um, when he says here, Proverbs 19, 17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. There's this whole connection, this whole triangle. I can't be mean to someone. I hate someone. And I say, I could love God. No, this is all connected. And so if I am to love someone, it's because I've been changed. And I am changed, and I am capable of loving someone. Now, we look at the, the most important in the triangle is God. What is my understanding of God? What did God do for me? How did he love me? And that affects everything. This is a description that's mentioned here in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That, and let's not just skim over the underlying part. God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. God sent his only son. If we are church, we've heard this a million times. And we just go over it. Yeah, God sent his son. We've memorized it. We've heard it. But If you really think about what he did, he sent his son for me. These are truths, and I remember I knew it. Even when I was seminary, I studied it. I studied in the original language what this meant. And I knew it in my head. Right, moms and dads, uh, until you have your own kid, you say, now I understand that. There was, uh, this is huge. This isn't just, I don't want to go, so hey, you go you know, for me. This is the sacrifice. This is when he told Abraham to go up the mountain with your only son and God will provide a sacrifice. This is the picture of this. And for any decent parent, they would say, I would take the punishment. If my daughter's sick, I would take the sickness. If someone hurt her school, I would take the hurt. I would jump in front of her for anything. Now, he sends his son. Not only does he send the son, it's not like he has a bunch of sons. He has one. We, are, we have to pause and just let that Really, just settle into our souls. And just take that truth into our hearts. And who did he send it to? Verse 10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He sent his son to people that rejected him. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. What it's saying here is that it wasn't because we were so good that he said, okay, I'm going to send him because you're so good. It was, you're not that good, but I'm still going to send you. You know, there's a TV show that's it's still on, surprisingly, um, Undercover Boss, and uh, some of you might have seen it. The, the premise of it, and it's pretty much the same in all of them, but it's uh, the CEO, the president, the boss, um, puts on some disguise, and he comes in as an entry-level new hire into the organization. And then they highlight one employee, and the employee now trains them of this menial work, this difficult work. And the employee now says, okay, this is how you cut this, and this is how you do this. And so there's cameras, and you get the patience, and the boss is fumbling around, and he doesn't know what he's doing, and we know the story. And, and then usually the employee who is helping them has some sappy story about, I've got 10 kids, and I can't feed them, and I was never able to go on vacation for 25 years. And, you know, it's hard, and you know, my car doesn't work. And then at the end, what happens? There's a big reveal. So the, the, the quote-unquote, the trainee comes and says, I'm not just a trainee. You, shh, I'm your boss. 
And you know, and they say, I'm going to give to you a new van. Like, I'm going to give you a raise. You get a vacation. There's a few I've seen where they were kind of cheap. And I was like, is that it? You're going to, on TV, here's $100. You know, like, is that? But the premise of the show is these people are so good. These people work so hard. Even if the boss isn't there, boy, they're so deserving. And he wants to give them this. This is what religion says. This is not what the gospel says. The gospel says the undercover boss came and you guys were all slacking. You were taking two-hour lunches. You weren't doing anything. You were rude and you were spoiled. You were stealing from the company. And I'm still going to reward you. Uh, When we hear this, we are a lot more satisfied with the undercover boss story. Hey, if they are worthy. But the story really is in Scripture about us is that we are not worthy. None of us were worthy. And the Paul, the older Paul gets, he addresses himself not just as a sinner, but later on in life, he's the chief of sinners. He's the worst of sinners. He understands his condition. And it is in the midst of this that he loves us. And he says, come, follow me. Love like me. Gary Berg, in his commentary on this passage, says this in An exhortation to obedience does not come with a threat. Instead, obedience is encouraged through inspiration. God's inspiring love, his generous affection, compels us to obey. This is what he's saying here is that this is not religion saying, you better do this or else. You better be a good boy or else, or God is going to take that away. God is going to take your job. God is going to. No, it's not a threat. He's saying, come follow me. Go to the cross, look at the love that he showed for us, and I am inspired. We are inspired. If he could love someone like me, how can I not love that person? If he could show grace to me, how can I not show grace? And there are parables and what Jesus teaches on this, you know, where they receive so much, and how could you not now forgive others? You've been forgiven so much. How could you not forgive someone? Our understanding in our relational triangle, if our understanding of what God did for me is correct, it changes me. I become a forgiving person. I become a graceful person. I become a loving person. And the way I view others now changes. Because when I look at the others, the strangers, as the scriptures talk about, the sojourners, the, the enemies, and when I'm supposed to love these people, when they could give nothing back to me, that is the model of the gospel. Now that makes sense. And we are called to this community. You know, John, at the end of his gospel, you know, there are the four gospels, and one's, uh, the one that he wrote is named after him, John, the gospel of John, the fourth book in the New Testament. At the end, there's a story. And John records a story about Peter. Now, we know the story. Um, Jesus, um, after his resurrection, in John 21, he encounters Peter by the water. And Peter had gone fishing. Remember, this was his trait before. And when he goes back to fishing, this was his way of saying, I failed. I've denied him three times. I failed. And I'm rejected. I got to go back to my old life. When we know the story that when Jesus calls him out, that John puts on a cloak, he puts on an outer garment, and he jumps in the water. And some have said it's because he thought maybe he could walk again. You know, he or he realized, boy, he's in the in the in the presence of God, and he had to cover his shame. But he puts it on before he jumps in. But it's interesting because John, in his detail, talks about the charcoal that he makes. On the water, uh, next to the water, he's, he has a charcoal. 
charcoal fire. And it's mentioned only twice. It's mentioned in John 18. In John 18, that charcoal fire is there. But this was where, it was in front of the charcoal fire where Peter denied Jesus three times. John 18, 18, right? The servants and the officers, and he says, I don't know him, I don't know him. And it was in front of the charcoal. And it was as if Jesus was saying, I'm going to redeem that. I'm going to take your failure, your experience in front of that charcoal. I'm going to light it up again. The smell, the heat, the, the look of it is going to remind you of your failure, but I'm going to restore you. And he calls him back in. And he asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? John 18, he denied him three times. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. He now brings him back. And at the end of it all, after he now redeems him, he says to him, feed my sheep, in verse 19, follow me. Rocks his world. Changes everything. Peter coming back to faith. Peter being redeemed here. Not only was it just a personal thing, it changed the course of history. What Peter understood changed my life, your life, and the history of mankind till now. He's redeemed. And maybe today you're coming back and this is that place. Maybe church is that charcoal fire place. And it's more guilt and a burden than it is joy to go sometimes. And you say, I'm back here. I failed here often in this context. I've made prayers and promises. I failed. I've done this, but we come back and he says, no, let's eat. Do you love me? Come follow me. Let God in Jesus Christ change you. Let his love identify who you are. And my prayer for us is that that would be the main identity of our lives and that would change everything. My self-worth, that the king of eternity sent his son to die for me. My purpose in life and my relationships with the lovable, the unlovable, that I would understand I've been given so much as an unlovable person. Now I want to follow him. This is the good news, isn't it? Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for the good news, the gospel that saves us, the, the love that you show us. And God, we cling to that identity that we are beloved people. And who you are and what you have done for us matter more than anything else in this world. And God, what you have done for us and our identity that we have, it changes the way we view people, treat people. Sharing with people, praying for people, forgiving people. Lord, it changes everything. And Lord, for some of us, we're back to that charcoal place. God, the back to that place of failure, and you redeem us, and you take us back again. And we are just humbled and grateful before you. Thank you, God. Thank you for sending your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.